cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is always present. Um, are you well, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, as can be. I mean, we, we, we've had international guests all along. We should have maybe uh, sent through our things to get the foreign, I don't know, documentary award at the Oscars or something. Give a bit of African nominations there. Yeah, we, we could we could do that, but then we'd have to like criticize like the American government and, and ignore that our government was also useless. Oh, right. You know, because the Iranians won, and then they were like, you Americans are terrible. And it's like, um, yeah, all right, yeah, about Iran. that. Yeah, about about the, the thousands of journalists <laughs> in prison in, in, in Iran. But nevertheless. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so Obama um, apparently wiretapped Donald Trump. Um, okay, wiretapping is like 1980s. Or yeah, 1960s. but Donald Trump's 70, and it's like, oh, right, I mean, right. the guy probably watches Magnum PR on like reruns. Right, so. and I actually believe Trump that he was so-called wiretapped, but only because practically every single person in the U.S. is fucking wiretapped, right? That's what Evan Snowden leaks was about. Yeah, I, the NSA was listening to everyone and, and watching everything you do. Yeah, so I don't know why it's a surprise to everyone. Okay, for Donald Trump to make it about himself. I think he only cares no, I think, he was I think Nixon attacked. did have to resign over doing shit like that. Oh, yeah, but that was another era, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was another era. And it, actually today uh, we're talking with a guest who is going to reflect back on a few other eras that we've come from as uh, – a species, I suppose, as humankind. Uh, we've really advanced quite a lot. You know, we often told um, how terrible everything is. Yes, especially ourselves. Yeah. We are quite terrible. Uh, and Sweden's quite terrible too. So thankfully, we've we found our guest just at the, within the two hours that internet's available in Sweden. Yeah. You know, due to the, and he's in, he's, he's near Malmo. Yeah, so. due, due to the state of emergency yes, and the grenades. And the grenades. And, uh, Denmark is invading. I don't know what's going on there. It was actually <laughs> just, ask, just, ask Trump. It's, it's very explosive, very explosive. So our guest today is Johan Norberg. Johan is a Swedish author. He's a historian and he's a fellow at the Cato Institute. And he's written a very interesting book about human progress. Johan, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Hello there. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, as as you know, we 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 picked you up on on a American podcast which we listened to, uh, the Cato Institute's Libertarianism dot org podcast, and uh, you wrote a book about uh, the future and uh, progress and human progress uh, and why we should stop being so pessimistic about our lives on Earth. Um, do you want to expand a bit about how you got to the point of writing the book? Well, yes, the background is that I'm absolutely terrified every morning when I wake up and follow the news uh, around the world because it's only about explosions, poverty, famine and disaster generally. But when I study the statistics and the data and when I read history as well, I notice something completely different. The fact that uh, there has never been a better time to be alive than today if you look at uh, average living standards, the fact that we live longer lives in better health, with more wealth and um, with more opportunities and freedoms than ever before. 
So there's a tremendous progress in the world that it has been around basically since the Industrial Revolution. But during the era of globalization, it's really picked up pace. Um, and at the same time, always, almost no one notices what is going on and why it's happening. So that's why I wanted to write this book to explain this. So, Johan, let's – oh, excuse me. Am I on? There we go. So let's just discuss the, the causes of, of such progress. So the statistics do bear out the fact that we live longer, we eat more, we work less, uh, we are much healthier. So let's take all that as a given. What reasons do you give for that amount of progress in a relatively short period of time, I might say? Yeah. I you write about specific uh, individuals, inventors, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, inventions, things that happened in various uh, areas. Everything from sanitation to uh, higher productivity to artificial fertilizer in this book. Uh, but when I then summarize what has been going on, uh, I summarize it in, in three aspects. It's the freedom to explore strange new uh, information and knowledge and uh, accumulate knowledge uh, across the generations. Uh, freedom of research and, and uh, finding out basically how to do things in a better way. But also the freedom to experiment with those ideas, with those technologies and to experiment with new business models uh, that make use of these things. Everything from how to increase productivity in agriculture to uh, the logistics, the infrastructure, like container shipping, for example, that makes uh, modern international trade possible. Uh, so it's exploration and it's experiments, but it's also exchange, the freedom to exchange these ideas, these technologies, these goods and services across borders. I think those three aspects are the most important ones. And the one thing that they all have in common is that it takes a certain degree of human freedom uh, to, to do strange new things that um, the majority would not have thought of or the government would not have thought of. Uh, the freedom for individuals to experiment with these ideas and technologies and business models, that's what starts this progress in various areas. I, mean, I do tend to agree with you on that. Uh, but the past decade or so, there's been two major books about why na why nations in general succeed or fail. So there was the first one, Gun, Gems and Steel, where Jared Diamond gives a very geographically centric hypothesis. You know, people closer to the river uh, who had fertile ground, they succeeded, whereas others did not. And why nations fail made it made the claim that institutions matter, especially inclusive institutions in a certain republic of sorts. Uh, are those I mean I often think it could be a factor of both, of course. But you do you have a third may I say, a third factor coming in where is it is about experimentation based on a, a a legal framework, so to speak, of a nation, because no one would ever create Red Bull in the Soviet Union, for example. <laughs> right. Because no one could actually experiment there. That's right. Um, I, I would say that I think that both these uh, explanations, they 
there are some important truths uh, to the matter, but I don't think they're really sufficient. Uh, I think that Jerry Diamond explains why certain areas were ahead of others uh, 1,000 years ago, basically. But it could have happened in, uh, it's not just a, Europe or the Eurocentric civilization, but it was also the uh, Arab Middle Eastern civilization and the Chinese one. So why didn't they develop? Something else uh, must have happened there. Uh, then I also think that there's some things to the institutions, the, the legal structure and the, the kind of um, basically the fact that uh, if for to work long term, to invest in a project uh, that happens long term, it gives reward in the long term. You need some sort of stability, some rule of law so that you know what will happen in the future. Um, and I think that Europe was definitely ahead when it comes to that. But when you look at these great breakthroughs, uh, for example, why the, the Industrial Revolution began to really pick up pace in, in England, um, it I, I would my my theory would be that uh, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, as the famous philosopher Leonard Cohen puts it. Uh, the fact that these institutions, authorities, they do not have total control of uh, of everything. The reason why it began to happen in England was that uh, the old monopolies and the guilds they didn't have power in certain cities, in certain uh, areas. And that's where the inventions began to happen. And I think we can see that again and again. Uh, suddenly things happen uh, because there's a, there's a crack uh, in the system. And that allows individuals to experiment. For example, Norman Borlaug, who probably saved the lives of a billion people uh, by uh, making sure we had modern agriculture, better crops, but also use of more artificial fertilizer and other things. He succeeded because there was a certain window of, of opportunity. And this happened specifically in India and Pakistan because they were suffering. They were had a tremendous famine and there was a war. So they had to rapidly feed their population and Suddenly, all those unthinkable ideas that he would never been allowed to experiment with, he could suddenly do that in the midst of that disaster. And that changed the world dramatically. And I don't think any uh, analysis of geography or institutions can really um, uh, claim for, for that. It's, it's, the, it's the cracks. That's where many interesting things happen. I think that's the story of the, I think it's a sewage system in London, um, next to the Houses of Parliament. I can't remember which year. I think it was the 17th century. It stank so much that the, the MPs almost refused to sit, uh, in, in a, in a session of the House, so to speak. So they actually found a way to, to clean up the River Thames. But I think it was something to do with, with, uh, a disease. I think cholera also was, yes, was, that's was, was fought for, against rather. That's right, midst uh, 18, uh, 1800s, uh, basically, uh, two big outbreaks of cholera, and they had to evacuate us of Parliament, and then that's when they really understood that something had to, had to be done. Um, and, and then, you know, they even had to, um, they compared uh, the, the River Thames to uh, hell in Greek mythology, uh, Benjamin Disraeli did. Uh, they had to. The stench was so bad that the curtains of the Houses of Parliament was soaked in lime chloride before it was uh, abandoned. Jeez. And that was the moment when they began to uh, sort of finding out that look, it's a bad thing to have human waste and refuse in the same place where we get the drinking water. Uh, it, it, now it sounds like uh, <laughs> something Obvious. that they should have 
realize, yeah, pretty obvious. But, you know, be, a genius is someone who says something obvious for the first time. Yeah, well, well, it's interesting because around the same time with those cholera outbreaks was uh, some of the advancements in sort of disease theory uh, and germ theory around in medicine comes comes from um, from a lot of that, and, and the epidemiology of disease um, was studied with regards to uh, the cholera outbreaks because they realised that it was in certain areas that it was happening, and they could sort of track the disease in a way. Um, so it, it is quite interesting in in terms of. What you're saying is that um, uh, in terms of invention, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, excuse me. So is, is, oh, do, are we as inventive, are we as creative? Do we come up with these solutions as much in current day as we did back then? Uh, or are we not as forced to, to find these sort of radical solutions which make massive changes to, to humanity? That is a very interesting question and it's very intriguing and because many intelligent people have opposite, come to opposite uh, conclusions here. Some say that we have a stagnation when it comes to new knowledge and breakthroughs. Others say that we live through the most dynamic era in a way and I think they could both be right because yeah. when I talk to researchers, uh, when I talk to inventors, and when I talk to uh, some in businesses and their development organizations, I'm shocked by the fascinating things that they come up with. Everything from biotechnology to artificial intelligence, I think they all have the potential to really change the world. Uh, but one thing that has changed is the, uh, the, the rules and the regulations, uh, because it's not as easy to put things to work as it used to be, uh, in a way, partly because we don't live in the era of necessity as much anymore, so that we've built up systems of uh, regulating things, of making sure that we uh, really experiment with things in a laboratory setting for decades before we really put things to use. Um, and then we even have the precautionary principle in many legal documents in the Western world, which is basically a principle that says, don't do anything for the first time. Uh, it's only when we've done it again and again that you can do it for the first time. So uh, I think that we have tremendous breakthroughs. We're on the cusp of tremendous breakthroughs, but we also have to allow it to, to really happen in the real world. And uh, we might be a bit more cautious today than we we used to be and that's part of what happens as you get richer mm. uh, you begin to invest more in uh, safety and uh, because we think that we have more to lose now than we have to gain from yeah. new breakthroughs yeah I mean, look i mean it's interesting I, th I think you do use the example with regards to uh, vaccine development so when when we're pushed uh, we we can actually achieve sort of great things you, you know we've we've got uh, many examples in history of of sort of viral infections killing off large percentages of the population um then in uh, the early part of this century we have uh, swine flu coming out and very quickly it's dealt with even though the who originally predicted that it, it could once again kill um, millions if not hundreds of millions uh, so, so when we need to, we, we, we tend to be pushed there. Um, how much, how much more though do you think, uh, I know you're a big proponent of freedom and liberty and, and, and how much do you think that, that in some ways, uh, deregulation and freedom are 
uh, going to drive the future of this? Because I'm thinking of something like space travel. You know, we 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 went there in the 60s because the Americans and the Russians were uh, competing with each other in a Cold War, uh, and then we lost interest in a way. Uh, and now the, the 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 private market has has taken over. Yes, and I think that's a great example, which could work as a metaphor for many other areas of of invention and of development. That yes, big government uh, plans can achieve certain things. If you devote all your resources to one goal, you might actually accomplish something more in a shorter period than uh, an open free market would have done, for example, putting a man on the moon. Uh, But the problem is that this doesn't create the... uh, uh, It's two things that it doesn't create. It doesn't create a... multiple alternatives, competing and cooperating institutions and businesses and inventors who can try to put things to use. It's only one big uh, attempt, and if that fails, it's it's really no use. But the other thing is that it doesn't create an infrastructure around it. That's the major achievement. If you look at any of these, all these inventions that I talk about, it takes something more than one effort. It all depends on... An, economic and technological infrastructure surrounding it. If you look at, for example, the breakthroughs in uh, uh, natural gas extraction, in uh, particularly in the in the United States, with fracking. But, yes, fracking is an idea that has been around for a couple of decades, but it didn't really happen. No one big uh, really was interested in, in either governments or big businesses. Um, it happened after a while through basically one major entrepreneur who was really devoted to it. But it also, it had to wait for a certain infrastructure to be there. Mm-hmm. It was dependent on, of course, things like uh, the financial infrastructure in the United States that made it possible to invest in things that seemed that like there was a little chance that this could uh, work in the long run. Uh, but it also dependent on a particular types of chemicals, the particular combination of fluids that could be used to really open up the these rocks. Uh, and that took other businesses who invented and experimented with these things. It also depended on horizontal drilling, which was a new technology that came from other places. So it's Almost all, it, it takes a village, basically, of, of businesses, of researchers, and of others who continuously work very hard to improve their particular small area of expertise um, to get breakthroughs done in other areas as well. Uh, and I think space exploration has really, is, is the, the perfect metaphor. It's not enough to put a man on the moon. It looks great, you have good footage, but then you just go back home, and that's the end of space exploration. It took hundreds of different eccentrics and entrepreneurs and businesses who began doing this and dependent on an infrastructure of other businesses with their expertise to get it, really get it going. Joan, I want to talk a bit more about the, the role of the state in all of this. So, I mean, you you in, from Sweden, and uh, 100, 120 years ago, Sweden was in a very dire place. Uh, even a few centuries ago, there was uh, widespread famine and, and, and all sorts of other uh, ills. Um, so now, for example, Sweden is often seen as socialist, which is untrue, of course. Uh, it's a, it has a thriving capitalist class and a very generous welfare system. So 
but as a state, do you think a state can be the driving force of innovation or a lack of state is better? Obviously, we're not going to compare the US and the Soviet Union. That's quite obvious. Yeah. But a general middle of the road liberal democracy in terms of where it actually does protect property rights. It does enforce contracts. It does enforce the rule of law. Obviously, those are better places to be for innovation than other other areas or other states. Right. I, I think Sweden is an informative example of this because 150 years ago, we were poorer than the, uh, the average sub-Saharan African countries today with higher poverty rates, with uh, shorter life expectancy and so on. And then it, something dramatic happened in the late 19th century, uh, which turned Sweden into one of the richest countries on the planet in just 100 years later, uh, in 1950, basically. Uh, and that was before we had the growth of the state in Sweden, uh, when we had the fastest progress, when we began to see the greatest uh, inventions in in Swedish businesses, where they used new technologies to create what we still call the the genius industries in Sweden. Uh, that was an era before the First World War when the Swedish government still only consumed less than 6% of GDP uh, in Sweden. So, and, and as late as the 1950s, uh, when Sweden was already one of the richest countries on the planet, we still had lower taxes than uh, the average European country had and lower taxes than the uh, the United States. It was only then that um, politicians began to see that, look, now we've created all of this wealth, now we can begin to redistribute those resources, now we can begin to consume rather than just invent and invest and, and produce uh, things. So I think that's an interesting example of how private initiative uh, really got these things going and also basically was behind the most interested in interesting investments in research and development. And that's still the, the private industry is still uh, incredibly important in, in those areas in, in Sweden. One of the reasons why we are ahead of many other countries when it comes to research and development as a percentage of GDP is that we have bigger multinational companies. Companies uh, that are then exposed constantly to international competition, uh, and they also have bigger research and development um, uh, areas in in their in their companies. Uh, so, uh, what does this say about the world? Well, I think it says that um, the initiative often com come from the private sectors, and then when it builds all the and these resources is often used by the government, but rarely does the government know better where to invest, where to, which technologies to pick as winners in, in the future as don't compare to what private businesses would do. Yeah, well, you know, it, it is a bit of a model. Um, I want to talk a, a little bit, you've mentioned sub-Saharan Africa and, and a comparison there um, to Sweden. Now, we will get there because we're, in sub-Saharan Africa, and and obviously we've um, still got, as our politicians would refer to it, many challenges to overcome. Um, but every morning, you alluded to it when we started, every morning you can wake up and turn on the television or you look at your phone on Twitter or, or whatever sort of sources that you use, and you will be told um, the, the thing that's going to kill you. 
uh, it's uh, or the thing that did kill people overnight, you know, um, whether it be a natural disaster. Um, you know, in the 90s, uh, scientists were, of course, going to um, fiddle with DNA, and that's why we get end up with movies like Jurassic Park, because ultimately the dinosaurs are going to come eat us. Um, yeah. uh, after that, we had a whole bunch of um, natural disaster films, uh, be it Twister or uh, all these sort of movies, The Perfect Storm. Uh, so the environment was 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 then going to kill us. Um, and of of late, it seems as if the the latest. Um, thing to be terrified of as if you're a human is that the robots are, are coming to kill us as well. Um, humans seem to have this uh, nature where they, they look for the negative. They look for the thing that is likely they believe to present the next greatest threat. Do you want to give us some data uh, in terms of the things that really used to kill us in large numbers that just don't anymore um, and we've, we've managed to, to overcome Yes, I think that uh, the one data point that summarizes many of the developments here is uh, life expectancy. Uh, and it has, despite all the terrible things that happened in the 20th century, life expectancy increased from 30 years to, well, 72 years today. Yeah, that's uh, global. Which is that's global life expectancy, right? And I mean, 200 years ago, there was not a single country in the world where life expectancy was longer than 40 years. Now there's not a single country where life expectancy is shorter than 40 years. So it kind of shows you that something amazing happened in the last, uh, just last four or five uh, generations of, of people um, around the world. Now, well, what happened? Well, partly it's to do with uh, broad factors like um, better nutrition, higher agricultural productivity and trade made it possible for us to feed our kids. Uh, in the first 100 years ago, basically every decade, some 10 to 15 million people died because of chronic undernourishment, because of large-scale famines. Uh, and now with a much, much larger population around the world, uh, we don't get up to more than half a million per decade. So that's, that's a, it's a tremendous development. Many other things are related to reduction in poverty on the whole, which makes it possible to do things like invest in safer water, invest in better living conditions, uh, electricity, gas stoves, so that you don't die from indoor air pollution uh, because you burn solid fuel uh, to, to prepare your food. Uh, but also, obviously, all the changes in um, uh, better medical technology, in vaccines, uh, in, in sanitation, that, so, which meant that all those things, tuberculosis, uh, cholera, the plague, smallpox, measles, all those things that everybody was certain that at least some of their kids would suffer and die from, uh, they're not there anymore. Uh, and it's something that we rarely think about today because we've got this mindset that you you never wake up and think, oh, gosh, I'm so happy I didn't get the polio today or, or the, the measles or, or smallpox. Um, but instead we think what will happen with the, the latest bird flu or Ebola. Uh, that's just the way the, the human mind works. Um, and that's probably a 
something that helped our survival. Traditionally, we're rarely happy about how far we've come, but we think about the next threat to our survival, and then we try to deal with that instead. Well, I think the big problem we face is you can, you can, we can relay facts all day long, but people just don't seem to want to believe them. Um, because we actually come from high, such a high base, especially in the West, that... <clears throat> Well, I think, well, bad news sells, right? If it, what's, what's, the, what's the term? If it bleeds, it leads. So the media is quite, uh, quite culpable in this regard. But people just don't seem to understand that we are, we are at the zenith of, of human civilization in 2017, but somehow we, we are regressing apparently because, who knows, politics or, or ISIS or something like that. But these are, are such minor and minute details on the grand trend of progress. So how do you counter someone who, who doesn't believe what you say, rather than just yes. relaying data, of course? Of course, yes, given sir. that you're you know, sitting in Sweden right now, and I'm sure there are criminals literally at your door, according to President Trump. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm even in Malmö right now in southern Sweden, which is supposed to be a place where it's burning everywhere. Uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the way it works and that's the way if it bleeds it leads not just in the media but also in our own minds Uh, i I remember a story um a couple of foreign friends who asked me about gothenburg which is the second biggest swedish city and they said is it safe to go there um and sort of why we've noticed that it's there are riots and, and fires everywhere it turns out that the only time they've ever heard about the city was when we had a european union summit in 2001 uh, and george w bush the american <laughs> president was there and there were big riots against him and fires that's the only time that gothenburg was ever in the world news and obviously that's then uh, it sticks in people's minds and that's the way we see the whole world um the old uh, old survey of I think it's Baltimore in the U.S. shows that the more people follow the cable news, the more they exaggerate the extent of crime, uh, but not in their own area of the city, because that's the one they know firsthand, uh, and they know that it's it's fairly safe, and it's probably been much safer in in the last few decades. But they all thought that crime was much, much worse in other parts of the city because that's the areas that they only heard about from the news. Uh, and, and it's difficult to do anything about that because we always want the m- most dramatic things, thing that happened around the world. That's, that's why we pick up our, our cell phone. That's why we pick up uh, the news. And I think this has been made worse because of global media and social media, because now journalists can pick from the whole world and find something. So even though homicides have been reduced by half in Western Europe and in the US in the last uh, two decades, there's always a serial murderer on the loose somewhere. And then that will top the news cycle everywhere. And we will all think that that's the it's more common than it really is. So how do you counter that? Well, you need to point to the data. You need to tell people about their own biases uh, and and to understand that, yes, this is happening and that's part of of reality, but we also have to look at the broad picture on everything that does not make the news because that's uh, more important and we have to be persistent in doing that. And it's uh, it doesn't always work, and especially because there are also a lot of politicians who want to exploit our fears because they know that, you know, it was H.L. Mencken who once put it that the role of the politician is to uh, 
constantly make people frightful, fearful uh, with uh, new threats all the time because then they will be clamoring for safety and they want the strong man to protect them and put things right. So you just have to be persistent, I think. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with everything you say. And generally speaking, I think people are quite poorly educated in in, in history and especially can they actually trust their own instinct at any given time? For example, in South Africa, where it is a, it is a very violent place, as borne out by the statistics, but people are afraid that uh, they'll be attacked absolutely everywhere they go, specifically tourists, whereas I've been living here for 25 years and have been attacked twice, for example, which is twice too many, of course. But in 25 years, it's not, it's not terrible by any means. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that this is something that people, in a way, intuitively realize when you explain why that bias is there. Uh, that's the thing that it's not enough with data, I don't think. I mean, just an anecdote. I uh, made a graph that summarized some of the things that has happened in the world in the last 25 years. Uh, reduction of uh, absolute poverty, of child mortality, of illiteracy, and of uh, something more that's nasty. And they've all been almost or even more uh, halved in 25 years. And I published this on social media and on Twitter, and someone retweeted me immediately saying, look at this terrible graph. It confirms my sense that we're going to hell in a handcart. Um, she had read the graph upside down. And many people, many people do that. Uh, and when I ask her and others who do these things, How, why do you do that? And they tell me it's not out of ignorance. It's because I pay close attention to the news. And I only hear about awful things. Um, and then that's why I also have a chapter in my book on, on perceptions, how we create our own perception of the world and why it is biased, uh, uh, probably for evolutionary reasons. Um, those hunter-gatherers who were just content uh, with having survived another day, they would probably be eaten by a predator or have a lack of food the next day. It was those who were a bit worried who continued to hunt and gather a little bit more. They survived uh, and they passed their genes onto us, but also their stress hormones onto us. So we constantly look for horrible things because somewhere in our reptilian brains, we think it's a threat to our, our survival. Um, I think people can understand that they have that bias and that it's always there, that bad is stronger than good, as the psycho as psychologists uh, put it. And that if you combine that with the data, uh, which tells them another side of the story, um, then I think many people buy that argument. Unfortunately, you do get this cabal of, well, they call themselves progressives, funnily enough, uh, but the Naomi Kleins of the world, the Paul Mason, uh, Michael Moore is one of them too, where they, they call themselves progressive and they have all the, all the, um, what the benefits of, of freedom of capitalism afforded to them and they use that to decry neoliberalism. Uh, that it, it rapes the, the whatever it rapes the earth, and it's enforcing slavery. Uh, not, of course, not in in a, in a literal sense, but in the Marxist sense. That despite all this progress, uh, capitalism and freedom is still very much the problem. Um, and they manage to sell out, you know, their books sell out and their talks sell out and all these sort of things. But I mean, I assume that's the bias. Are those people that understand their bias and exploit it for their own benefits? 
or do people actually seem to believe them? Yes, this is very strange. Uh, I remember Naomi Klein writing in one of her books that capitalism was unleashed in its most barbaric form in 1990, uh, <laughs> unleashed upon the world. Uh, so what happened after it was unleashed? Well, extreme poverty was reduced by three quarters, and it happened the most in the places that she condemned the most for having liberalized the markets the most. Um, so if that's uh, barbaric capitalism, we need more of it. Uh, but I think this is partly uh, it's the same thing. They can obviously point to problems in the world, things that are not all right in the world. As I, I think leftist economist Joseph Stieglitz put it, if global capitalism is so great, why are so many people uh, poor and miserable? Uh, and it's true. A lot of people are poor and miserable, fewer than ever before. We made greater progress than ever before uh, against it, especially in the places that liberalized the most. But there will always be those problems. And then people will always be eager to look for some culprit. Um, because what people fail to realize is the, the basic fact that uh, poverty does not need an explanation it's the rise out of poverty that has to be explained because poverty was there first. It was only then when we began to climb out of it that uh, uh, we, we needed an explanation. And, and according to my point of view, this was because of uh, the rise of uh, industrialization and of free market capitalism. But I think there's also something else um, that they are, are dealing with, especially in people who are rich and who buy Michael Moore's and Naomi Klein's books, uh, it's a certain sense of bad conscience, uh, conscience as well. They know that they lead fairly comfortable lives. And um, they then, the two things happen then. One is what uh, psychologists call, some psychologists have called it collapse anxiety. If things have been going fairly well, you have this sense, because we're all sort of farmers. We know that after good uh, weather comes bad weather at some point. We cannot just continue like this. There must be something uh, wrong, something that can happen. I think a lot of uh, environmental doom-mongering is, uh, is really based on this. If, if it gets even better, it must be even worse sooner or later. Uh, so a horror movie. You're just waiting for someone to poke out of the shadows. Exactly, and especially when you're very content and you're sitting on the sofa in the horror movie and girl meets boy, then then the monster must appear. Uh, but but then I also think there's something else: is this zero sum game attitude to uh, the economy that has uh, always the the basic misunderstanding of how the economy works, uh, which tends to say that if someone gains, someone else must lose. And I think. Both the sort of uh, economically illiterate left and the economically illiterate nationalist right buy into the zero-sum game. They all think that the left says that if the Western world has benefited tremendously, it must be on somebody's back. Uh, we must be to blame. We've, we've condemned others to, to starvation. Um, the new nationalist right and the Trumps of the world, they noticed that this is not what happened. It's on the contrary. The Chinese and the Indians and the Vietnamese, they grow richer faster than ever before. Uh, but they buy, still buy the zero-sum game. So they think that we must be the losers. Yeah, it's, un it's unfair. 
richer places. Exactly. So then we must stop them and we must have protectionism and other things to stop them. They, they all live in a kind of a pre-Adam Smithian world where they don't understand that on the free market, no deal ever happens unless both, both sides think that they benefit. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole point of free trade is it's two parties coming together and making an agreement. There's nothing, there's nothing more to it. Um, I just, we've got, you know, about 10 minutes or a little bit less to go. Uh, obviously we've, we've managed to overcome famine to a large extent, you know, starvation worldwide. I think you mentioned is less than uh, or around 10% uh, of the world is, is, is sort of in some sort of malnourished state, whereas that was up around 50% a hundred years ago. Uh, we've overcome that. Uh, war was obviously a large uh, component of, of what killed us, uh, disease as well. Um, a lot of these things are starting to, to either disappear or have largely been reduced in terms of their threat to us, to us um, sort of living good and uh, sustainable and healthy lives. Um, what are the sort of biggest problems that are still on our radar that we are battling to some extent to overcome. Uh, this would be in areas like uh, where we are in sub-Saharan Africa um, and, and elsewhere. I'm sure Africa falls, falls well within, with, within the areas where there still are, are relatively large problems. Um, and, and what are some of the uh, solutions? Is it just sort of continue and things will get better or are there specific things that you think need to happen? Yes, I think that Obviously, we can look at specific threats that could uh, happen in the future. Uh, I think a lot of people are concerned with that, obviously. And uh, it's always the case that uh, bad things will happen. Uh, they always have. Uh, so the only question is how are we prepared to deal with that, the level of wealth and technology and, and knowledge uh, that it takes to deal with that is greater than ever before. Uh, so I think that's the solution to continue to uh, to build that. But I think that what's still the biggest the, the biggest problems around the world, and uh, definitely in, in sub-Saharan Africa, is that still problems of poverty. Uh, the fact that too few people have access to uh, electricity, have access to uh, safe water, sanitation, uh, and uh, a lot of people still die. A lot of children still die uh, because they don't have access to the kind of uh, medical technology that exists in other parts of the world. Uh, there are no sort of simple silver bullets to these things because they all take a particular kind of social and economic and physical infrastructure to to deal with. But the best way to get that is, I, I think, this continuous increase in uh, economic wealth uh, and of knowledge and of, of technology. It might not sound terribly romantic, um, but I, I still think it's the best lifesaver. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in closing, I think it's very important to state that the famine that's happening today is planned famine. It's not, yes. a, it's not a state of, of it's, not, it's not a natural fallacy. It's not an appeal to nature. People that are starving today are, are if you look at Venezuela, if you look at Zimbabwe. North uh, Korea. Yeah, North Korea. Those are all planned famines. It's not a, a state of being anymore. Someone has to actually try starve people. 
And I think that's quite a, uh, it's quite a, okay, unfortunately not for those people who are starving, but in general, that is absolutely brilliant for us where the state of being is not suffering and hunger, really. Exactly. And that's an incredibly good point because it also shows that the biggest problem in, in dealing with continued development, uh, the biggest thing that stands in the way is those uh, planners and those crooks who ruin progress for others because we have knowledge and it's more easily tra- uh, transmitted across borders than ever before and likewise with technology and uh, and know-how uh, generally. Uh, but you can still ruin it. I mean, we have a famine in northern Nigeria because Boko Haram has destroyed uh, farms and, uh, and ruined uh, livelihoods. Uh, over there, we still have sort of the planned destruction of uh, individual initiative in countries like Venezuela from the top down. So basically, the biggest obstacle is not natural anymore. It's um, those people who ruin uh, progress consciously or or un- unconsciously, just as a as a sort of a, an effect of what they yeah. uh, did to try to improve. Uh, the world. So it's people standing in the way of progress. That's the greatest risk. Well, Johan, uh, sorry, Johan, uh, apologies. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. I understand you, you need to go somewhere, but uh, we really do appreciate you, you uh, fitting us in. Um, and as always, it's, it's fascinating to listen to you. Um, I just want to tell, tell the listeners, your book is, is Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. It was published last year. is available, obviously, uh, online, Amazon, and, and all major bookstores, I'm sure. Uh, is there anything anything final you want to do? Want to say? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. So <laughs> I I appreciate that. That's really an interesting conversation. I think. Uh, where can we find you? Social media style. Well, you can find me uh, on my website, joannorberg dot net, uh, but also my official website on on Facebook. Johan Norberg official, and uh, you can also find me on on Twitter uh, as as just the, the Johan Norberg. You can we, you can engage with people who read graphs upside down. <laughs> exactly, I'm I've, I've dealt with people who read graphs in all kinds of of ways now. <laughs> so. Well, Twitter is the one place you won't get an apology for that. At least they read something, Johan. Most people don't. <laughs> Nevertheless, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate your your time and um, all the best for the book. Hope it sells extremely well. So don't read newspapers, read this book, people. It's more honest. Yeah, data, data. Thank you so much, Johan. Thank you very much. And that was uh, Johan Norberg. Yeah, it's always interesting when as he seems to, to, to believe. And I read some excerpts of, excerpts of his book. And basically, if you actually leave people with as much freedom as possible to pursue the individual, some what's called selfish, uh, you know, um, goals, um, everything, everyone else benefits. It's actually quite an amazing... Tell us more, Ayn Rand. <laughs> I haven't read one Ayn Rand book. People keep saying I'm a Randian. I've never read her. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, I mean, a lot of the stuff that he goes to, goes into in the book and it's divided into specific chapters. For example, there's a chapter on sanitation and he, and he goes into the, the advances that were made in that and, and, and the benefits that, that resulted in that. Um, 
talk about war, talk about famine. Uh, he, uh, he mentioned it now in our discussion quickly, but the, the gentleman who, who, who was looking at, at new ways of agriculture and he, he attributes, uh, the, uh, invention of compost. Uh, us being able to uh, sort of manufacture manure. Um, well, I don't know what the correct sort of scientific term is, but, fertilizer. but fertilizer. Yeah, oh, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Ramon schooling, schooling me there. Um, uh, as, as one of the greatest achievements and, and be, uh, which has been able to get us to, to have food security well, worldwide. I mean, just, just, just to remove our, 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 what you call it, waste products from our water supply has probably been the greatest one. So the toilet is probably the greatest invention ever, ever created. But nevertheless, uh, excellent conversation. Jonathan, thank you for organizing. No worries. No worries. Um, hopefully he doesn't get, uh, yeah, a grenade into his house. Well, in if you listen to, it's, if you it's listen far to more Donald. dangerous than, than Hilbra at the moment, if you don't know. Yeah. There, was, there was five firecrackers last year. Yeah, there does seem to be a bit of an, a bit of a narrative being pushed for with regards to Sweden. Anyway, uh, enough on that. Uh, we will obviously catch you next time. Please, if you like the show, you can rate us on iTunes. Uh, you want to chat about anything that was on the show, you can find myself at Jonathan underscore Witt or at Roman Kabernack on Twitter. Our Facebook page is Renegade Report and our Twitter, Renegade underscore Report. Uh, please chat to our guest as well if you want to uh, ask him anything. It's always nice to have some engagement. And we have a Facebook group in which we have quite uh, good discussions. And uh, we'd love to we'd love to see you there so you can just find us quite easily and ask to join the group. We'll let you in. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and we will catch you next time. Central.com